Up From the Ashes, The Star Lost. 50 years later, episode one, what is The Star Lost? Hello and welcome to Up From the Ashes, a podcast celebrating the 50-year anniversary of a television show that no one demanded a podcast about. And I should say no one that I know because there might be someone out there who was demanding a podcast about the Star Lost. And if you were demanding a podcast about the Star Lost, well, we heard your demands and here it is. Here we are. This is the podcast for you. I'm Ben, Ben Avery, and I am not quite 50 years old. I am a science fiction fan. I am a science fiction writer. I am a science fiction consumer. And I am also the biggest fan of the Star Lost that I know. (laughs) I actually have hopes that I might get to know some fans of the Star Lost who are bigger fans than I am. Or, you know, If you're a fan of the show and not to the same level of enthusiasm as me, I still want to hear from you. I still want to meet you. I'm hoping that this show does create some opportunities to have some conversations with people who enjoy the show or who maybe ironically enjoy the show or who enjoy the conversation that we're having about the show. Because this show is not going to be just talking about the Star Lost. It's also going to be talking about science fiction history. It's going to be talking about science fiction ideas and tropes and concepts. And as we talk about episodes of the Star Lost, I imagine that we'll be also talking about other better sci-fi that it makes us think of. The show that we're going to talk about here Well, a lot of people haven't heard of it because it's just not that great. It didn't turn into this giant franchise that, you know, when you're talking about the star franchises, you're talking about your Stargate, you're talking about your Star Wars, you're talking about your Star Trek, you're not talking about your Star Lost. So as a TV show, it's not great, but it is interesting. And so this podcast. Now, why this title, Up From the Ashes? Well, the title refers to a couple different things, but the genesis of the title comes from the Star Lost original teleplay written by the amazing, the one, the only Harlan Ellison. And it was called Phoenix Without Ashes. Now, when we do get into the first episode in our next episode of the podcast, you'll see The pilot episode was called Voyage of Discovery, not Phoenix Without Ashes. We'll get into it. But I was looking for a title that would reference the show in some way and also reference the kind of thing that we're going to be doing and talking about here. And I got to thinking about his original title, Phoenix Without Ashes, and it got me thinking about, well, ashes. Okay, and frankly, this show has been left in ashes. Harlan Ellison has burned this show verbally and in print many, many times over the years. And there's a part of me that would like to give this show a chance to be brought up from these ashes. The ashes could also be considered the ashes that were left behind because the show itself is sort of, well, not good. And so my guest hosts and I will be pulling these episodes of The Star Lost up from the ashes and dusting them off and and maybe deciding that they need to go back into the ashes or maybe deciding that they need or deserve this second chance. But I also wanted the title of this podcast to be vague enough that if we decided to do a season two, because the Star Lost only lasted a partial single season, uh, if we were to continue on, then I didn't want the Star Lost to be in 
the title of the podcast. And so I, I have ideas already for what a season two and a season three. And I have ideas already for what a season two, a season three could look like. And up from the ashes would be really kind of the theme that unifies them all, which is taking a look at bad sci-fi TV and big sci-fi ideas. Here's the deal. I know the show isn't very good, but every episode has some promise. Now, every episode also has some serious weaknesses and some more than others. But the fact is they made the show, they did something big and they did their best with what limited resources they had. And we'll get into that in this episode, but also they explored some big ideas and they, this is one of the clearest examples of a television show where their, their grasp exceeded their reach. But I also saw a quote recently from Robert Browning, where he says, your grasp should exceed your reach because otherwise what is heaven for? You know, you should be reaching for something that's just beyond what you can actually do because as you're reaching for it, you might have something special. And so this show, the star lost, we are here to celebrate what they did with this show. We're here to celebrate that they, they did it. We're here to explore the big ideas that they may have touched on in this unique TV series premise. And we're also here to frankly point out some of the problems. Now, before we get into the show, just very quickly, who are we? Well, the we that I'm talking about for this episode is just me. It's just me talking about this, kind of giving the background and everything like that. But in the future episodes, I am lining up science fiction writers or people who are creating content that is adjacent to you know science fiction books or whatever uh, to come on and talk about the shows with me. So it's not just me talking about each episode of the show. I will have guest hosts on to talk about the side topics and to talk about the 16 individual episodes of The Star Lost. So that's the we that I keep talking about. But this episode exists to answer the question, what is The Star Lost? Why should I care? Well, The Star Lost is a television show that was on CTV, which is a Canadian television network. It was also on some NBC affiliates in the United States. Before I get into what is The Star Lost, I also want to answer the question, and I think I feel like I, I need to start there, which was what was The Star Lost meant to be? The answer to the question, what was the Star Lost intended to be? What was it meant to be? The answer to that is the greatest sci-fi TV show of all time. At least that was the hope and the dream of its creator. And its creator was one Cordwainer Bird. So let's start with Mr. Bird. <laughs> Who was Cordwainer Bird? And have you ever heard of him? Well, you may have. If you are a science fiction fan, you may know exactly who Cordwainer Bird is because that is the pseudonym for Harlan Ellison. In his contracts, when he would go into a project, he has reserved the right to use this name, Cordwainer Bird, instead of his own name if he felt like the project was going to be something that he did not want his real name on. And for the Star Lost, one of the things they were banking on by bringing in Harlan Ellison, they were hoping that that name would bring credibility to the project, to the show, to investors, credibility to investors, and credibility to viewers. 
but he had this reservation in his contract. And Cordwainer Bird is actually registered with the Writers Guild or was registered with the Writers Guild of America. Uh, so he was able to do this if he felt that a situation was going sideways and that the show that he was working on was not going to adequately, accurately <laughs> resemble what he felt like it should. And as you've probably figured out, because he used his pseudonym, things did not go well. The story of the making of the Star Lost, from Harlan Ellison's point of view anyway, is um, found in an essay called Somehow I Don't Think We're in Kansas, Toto. And this essay appears in the as, as the introduction to the book Phoenix Without Ashes by Edward Bryant. Do you recognize that title? Phoenix Without Ashes? Yes, that is the original title for the original teleplay of The Star Lost. After The Star Lost was canceled and after it was almost forgotten by a lot of people, the original script was taken by Harlan Ellison and handed off to Edward Bryant, who turned it into a novel. And the novel also has that essay in it that I was talking about, where Harlan Ellison gives his point of view of the story. Now, we are going to come back to that novel eventually in its own episode as a part of the uh, Up From The Ashes podcast as we explore all these kind of uh, side topics that go along with, with the Star Lost. But for a long, long, long time, his side was the only side of the story that was actually going out into the universe. Now, at least when you're talking about his experience with City on the Edge of Forever, his side went out there and Gene Roddenberry's side went out there and then DC Fontana's side went out there and you had... All sorts of people talking about their side of the story of where City on the Edge of Forever came from and then why it got changed. And then, you know, was it good? Was it not good compared to the original script? And I dived into that. I, I've been diving into Harlan Ellison far more than I ever thought I would. I was aware of him as a science fiction writer, of course, because he's just all over the place. If you're looking into classic science fiction. He's a grandmaster. He is royalty. He is science fiction royalty. His episode from Star Trek, City on the Edge of Forever, is considered the favorite episode for many, many, many fans and has been voted as the top episode of the original series uh, many, many times over. But that story has been told by him, by Gene Roddenberry, by other people who were involved. The story of the Star Lost, it's basically his voice. That's the one that's out there. And... As much as I like Harlan Ellison, he can be ruthless. And so in his essay, he he is, he's ruthless. And in his essay, he makes the other people involved in this whole drama uh, look incompetent or, or even downright evil. So here's a sample. This is just from the beginning of, of his, his essay. Six months of my life were spent in creating a dream, the shape and sound and color of which has never been seen on television. The dream was called The Star Lost. And between February and September of 1973, I watched it being steadily turned into a nightmare. The late Charles Beaumont, a scenarist of unusual talents who wrote many of the most memorable Twilight Zones, said to me when I arrived in Hollywood in 1962, attaining success in Hollywood is like climbing a gigantic mountain of cow flop in order to pluck one perfect rose from the summit. And you find when you've made that hideous climb, you've lost the sense of smell in the hands of the inept the untalented, and the corrupt, the star loss has become a veritable Mount Everest 
of Calflop. And though I climbed that mountain, somehow I never lost sight of the dream, never lost the sense of smell. And when it got so rank I could stand it no longer, I descended, leaving behind $93,000, the corruptors, and the eviscerated remains of my dream. I'll tell you about it. <laughs> so you can see um, just kind of where he's coming from. He is not a fan of the end result that came from the star lost. But I was so excited as I was getting ready to do this as a podcast. I was so excited to find the book science fiction television series volume one, which is 1959 to 1989. Now I haven't read in depth about the other television series that this giant 600 page book covers, but one of them is, uh, there's, there's some, there's war of the worlds. There's voyage to the bottom of the sea. There's star Trek, star Trek, the next generation. There's Superboy. There's the Spider-Man TV show. There's UFO. There's a twilight zone, two versions of the twilight zone. Uh, it just is a fantastic, fantastic reference. And what they did when they made this book is they talked to the producers and some writers and some of the actors of all these different series. And each series gets a, I don't know how many pages each one actually gets, but I'm going to say about six pages per series. And the star loss is no exception, which I found to be fascinating and exciting considering again, 16 episodes of a show that's largely forgotten that really didn't get much in syndication until star Wars came out, which is how I came across the star, the star lost. I came across it Saturday afternoon, a couple Saturday afternoons in a row, uh, just Star Wars had been out. I was a little kid. I was flipping channels in our, you know, we lived in just out in the boondocks in Ontario. And um, I, re I remember seeing a couple scenes from a couple episodes. I remember the spaceship, which looked so cool. And I remember seeing uh, a gun battle, actually, a laser battle. And, you know, I, I have these vague memories of this show. And so that was my introduction to it years and years later. I'm an adult and I was just trying to remember what is this show? What was that show? What, what was it? And so I just looked up Canadian sci-fi TV show. That was all I looked up and I found it right away. And it turned out that it was coming out on DVD fairly soon after that. And so of course I got the DVD, the DVD set and I watched the show and I enjoyed myself. One of the reasons why I enjoy stuff like that is because when I watch stuff like that, I tend to give the creators the benefit of the doubt. And I sometimes start watching it and seeing what I think they maybe they intended it to be uh, opposed to what it actually ended up being. But anyway, that still gets a nice chunk of a, a chapter here in this science fiction television series, 1959 to 1989. I think one of the reasons why it might have so much space in this book though, is because the people who wrote it are Canadian. And I think they might've wanted to have a chance to let the people behind the show give their own story and not just have Harlan's voice dominate the conversation. So Mark Phillips and Frank Garcia, they wrote the book. They interviewed lots and lots of people for this book. But for the purposes of this podcast, I was so excited because they introduced a couple of the producers and the guy who ended up taking over as writer from Harlan Ellison. They gave them the opportunity to stand up for themselves and actually present their side of the story. So 
What was the Star Lost intended to be? As I said, it was intended to be the greatest sci-fi TV show ever, and it really was on track to being that. First of all, they recruited Harlan Ellison. They they recruited him to act as a showrunner. He was going to write a few of the episodes. He was going to create the Bible. Why did they do that? Well, they brought him in because the man was, like I said, science fiction royalty. He had written the fan favorite episode of Star Trek, City on the Edge Forever. He had won awards for it. Uh, that's the other interesting thing that once all the story is done from Harlan Ellison, it's not actually done with the Star Lost. Even when he walked away from the show, he took his original script and he won a Writers Guild of America award for his script, which also happened with City on the Edge of Forever. He won a Writers Guild of America award for his original script, not what they shot with, but for his original script of City on the Edge of Forever. He had written two of the best episodes of The Outer Limits, which The Outer Limits is a fantastic show, but his two episodes pretty pretty good episodes before i started recording this i rewatched those two episodes those are the two episodes by the way that caused him to get credit in the terminators and credits because he said that james cameron was telling people that he got his inspiration from those two episodes of the outer limits and if you watch those two episodes and imagine squeezing them together and you squint a little bit, you can see it. It didn't actually go to court. It didn't go to arbitration. The studio just settled and, and gave him some money and said, we'll put your name in the, in the credits for this. Anyway, he'd also written many, many multiple award-winning short stories. He wrote novels. And he was a big deal. Capital B, capital D. He was also irascible. I mean, the guy was angry a lot. Now, it was part of his charm. It's part of what some people liked about him watching him do his segment on sci-fi channels, the buzz from, I think it was the early nineties. might've been mid nineties. I'm not sure exactly, but watching him do that, it was just him ranting for five minutes about why they should, they should have more lifetime achievement award winners for, I think it was the Hugo or whatever it was. And he named names and he put it out there and said, you need to send them letters and say, you know, because these people who deserve lifetime achievements, they're dying. And it's not going to get their lifetime achievement in time. He was an angry man, but he also would get angry about injustice and he would get angry about untruth. And that's why he was so angry about Gene Roddenberry and some of the things that Gene Roddenberry said about City on the Edge Forever. Part of his charm, but it's also part of why some people hated him. The anger, honestly, I think drove his writing. It fueled his writing. It shows up in his writing. Uh, but he won awards, I think, because he was putting his heart on the page. Unfortunately, it also made him difficult to work with. So they bring him in to pitch a story idea, but there was no contract or agreement between them and Writers Guild rules meant you can't write for someone unless there's some sort of uh, agreement or some sort of uh, contract. So he can't write the series Bible. Instead, he gives them a verbal pitch that was recorded and he goes into all of the details. He had music and everything. He played the uh, theme from 2001, all, thus spake or whatever it is, playing behind him. And it was just this fantastic, dramatic, not recitation, because he's kind of making it up as he went along, I think. But he gave them the idea of this Noah's Ark in space. Earth has been destroyed. This ship is out there and there are different pods that are gigantic, you know, 50 miles across these different pods. And there's been an accident centuries ago. And now each of these pods has their own culture and they've been separated from each other. And you have your protagonist who's going to be going from pod to pod to pod and coming across different cultures and coming across different problems. 
and it was going to be the greatest story ever. And it was going to be a novel on television. It wasn't just going to be episode, episode, episode. It wasn't going to just be the fugitive where he's just going from place to place and he's being chased, but it was going to be a novel and it was going to start with them realizing there's a problem. And the, this, these three young people from uh, a very Amish like society, they're going out into the ship, discovering that there's a problem with the ship, discovering that they need to fix something with the ship. And then by the end of the series, they were going to be at the control room and they were going to save the ship. I'm assuming they were going to save the ship. Now um, I don't think, broadcast television would allow Harlan Ellison. And when I say broadcast television, not allowing him, I don't mean standards and practices. I mean, the powers that be who are the money makers behind the networks and behind the production company, they weren't going to allow him to let the ship fall into the sun or whatever. But anyway, that was his idea to do like a four season television novel. And so he tells the story. He gives them the recording. And a few months later, a production company in London was interested in doing the show because they read his treatment. His spoken recording had been put into print. He specifically told them not to, but they put it into print. They shopped it around. And now you have a broadcast channel in London. They're interested in it. So, of course, he's upset. But it was London. He was game. (laughs) And so it was going to be shot in London It was going to be a BBC production. He was excited. He gets to work on it. And then things go sideways. (laughs) At the end of the day, they passed on it. And it ended up going over to Canadian television where CTV picked it up. And they were going to produce it in Canada. NBC, based on um, some promotional stuff that they put together, NBC picked it up, but not for their regular network primetime programming, but as a syndicated show for some NBC affiliates who wanted it. So he goes to work and there's a whole thing in his book or in his essay, rather, where he talks about how, you know, there's a writer's strike in the States. And he was told that he could have permission to work on the show because it was Canadian. And the Canadian Writers Guild was not on strike with the American Writers Guild yet, even though there were some solidarity agreements between the American Writers Guild and the Canadian cohorts. Uh, So anyway, he writes the series Bible. He writes Phoenix Without Ashes. And he does so with the thinking that Douglas Trumbull was going to be doing the special effects. And we'll talk about him in a moment. He also brought in some more science fiction writers to possibly write new episodes or write more episodes. Philip K. Dick being one and Ursula Le Guin being another. Ursula Le Guin of the whole group of people that he was going to bring in, she was the only one who actually did write an episode for the show. He got Ben Bova to act as the science consultant. Now, Ben Bova was the editor of Analog uh, the, the pulp sci-fi magazine at the time. And he was a science fiction writer in his own right, but he also was a, a master of it. And Ellison wrote the main character for a famous science fiction actor, Walter Koenig. <laughs> but that's not who they hired. The American network wanted an American actor who was going to be a recognizable name and a recognizable face. So they hired Keir Dulia. And that is a name that you might know from a huge science fiction movie, 2001, which is I sometimes talk about, you know, is something worth reading and or something worth watching? And I'll say yes or no. Sometimes the yes is because it's homework. 2001 A Space Odyssey is cinema 
homework. It is a movie that it is astounding visually, but there are some people who find it very boring <laughs> plot wise. I'm not one of them. I actually like that movie, but it is something that is an achievement in special effects. And so Kira Dulia was on that movie as one of the leads. And then you have Douglas Trumbull, who was one of the special effects people behind that movie. Now he was coming off of directing silent running, but he was coming onto this show as the special effects guy. He was a special effects wizard and 2001 owes a lot to his vision and his ability to take the screenplay that Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick were coming up with. And he was visualizing it and putting it on the screen. So that's why I'm saying what was this show meant to be? What was it intended to be? Well, you have one of the greatest science fiction writers of all time. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that you have one of the greatest special effects artists of all time. We're talking about practical effects. And he was bringing in his uh, special effects method called Magicam that was going to put green screen and blue screen to shame. And he used practical models and effects. And bringing him in was going to be just, it was going to take this science fiction show and take it leaps and bounds beyond what you would expect to see on television. You have the star of one of the greatest sci-fi movies of all time. And so you have all the right things, all the right components, but then it starts going wrong. <laughs> and this is where things start going sideways. And this is where I'm going to turn it over to let us hear the story in the player's own words. Like I said, the two sources I have for this are Harlan Ellison's essay in the Phoenix Without Ashes book. It's also been reprinted in other places. I think you can probably find it online somewhere and science fiction television series uh, by Mark Phillips and Frank Garcia. So here is the story of the production of The Star Lost. William Davidson is, was the show's producer, and he says this. Arthur Weinthal of CTV and Ted Delaney of CFTO, Glenn Warren, called me in to discuss producing The Star Lost. I thought it was a terrific concept and offered strong dramatic possibilities and popular appeal. I knew Harlan by reputation as a kind of a science fiction guru. When I met him, I was equally impressed by his ideas and his incredible energy. I brought about 34 Canadian writers in to meet him, and he chose some of them to begin working with him. Meanwhile, his U.S. contacts began to show an interest in the series. I appreciated the opportunity to work with Doug Trumbull and to introduce his Magicom process to television production. Doug is a genius and one of the nicest people you could work with. He was full of enthusiasm and energy. He brought his family up with him and rented a cottage north of Toronto. Then there was CFTO Glenn Warren. As a videotape production facility, they were as good as any facility in the world. Managing to get their senior production staff man, Ed Richardson, as an associate producer and director was icing on the cake. The potential for something great was there. As we went into production, a couple of unexpected things happened. Harlan quit on us. The full story of his deserting the ship is very complex. He's written in very harsh terms about his involvement with the project. I'm sure Harlan's rage and indignation are genuine and deep. Whatever the complete story, he made no attempt whatsoever to understand our budget and production problems. He wrote scripts and story ideas that called for Spielberg-like production budgets. Then he had his lawyers give us the bird with his nom de plume, Cordwainer Bird. 
The other major event was that Doug Trumbull's Magicam system didn't work in time. We went into production with an overnight switch back to the standard technique of electronically joining images of static background settings and having the performers working in front of blue curtains. We all felt very sorry for Doug. He had problems in delivering his system on time and it was very unfortunate for everyone. I lost a valuable associate. There were no scripts at all. Doug's Magicam process wasn't working yet. Studio space was very tight for such an ambitious project, and the completion schedule was frightening. There was no time for rehearsal for the performers. We had a four-day shoot, seven days for complex videotape editing, laying music and effects, and turning out a two-inch master completed program for the U.S. three days later. We knew we would be working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The lights never went out in the Starlost offices. And then Ed Richardson, who he was talking about in in that, who works with uh, CFTO Glenn Warren Studios, he says, initially we had Kira Dulia, Harlan Ellison, and Doug Trumbull. And that gave it a science fiction marquee of three people who knew about science fiction. I directed a promotional piece for the show with Trumbull, and we tried a number of effects with Kira in the studio. We were trying to create a video technology as we went along. The special effects device that that should have worked didn't, if it had... It would have enabled us to take miniature models and put our actors into them. We could have created all kinds of hills and valleys and monsters and blended our live actors into that. The process, however, only worked sparingly and quickly fell down. We had to film the series static, and it turned out flat. Then there's Norman Klenman, who is a Canadian writer, but he actually worked on American TV, and so he was someone that they really wanted to bring in because because it was Canadian television production, they needed to have a certain percentage of Canadian creators behind it. Clemen says this. <laughs> Arthur Weinthal told me the Americans wouldn't do a show in Canada unless it had an American star and an American head writer. I had done a lot of work at Fox, so they zeroed in on me. There had never been any major Canadian series done from here, Canada, to there, U.S. When I read his Bible for the Star Lost and his first draft of the opening episode, this is uh, Norman Kleinman now talking about Harlan Ellison's writing after Harlan had left. When I read his Bible for the Star Lost and his first draft of the opening episode, I nearly gave birth to a cow. Bad is one thing, boring is another. I regretted having to give Harlan a call and introduce myself to him. I said to him, Harlan, I'm on my way to Toronto to work on the show. I haven't had any experience in science fiction. I gather you wrote the pilot. He was snarky on the phone. I said, well, then to hell with you. When I got to Toronto, they gave me his pilot to read, and it was dreadful biblical nonsense. The idea of people stranded on a sphere of a spaceship wasn't bad, but everything else was boring. I rewrote it and tried to lighten it up and make the characters more three-dimensional. Ellison later went moaning and groaning around the country, advertising his disappointment with the Star Lost series. The strange thing was... Harlan later won a Writers Guild of America award for his original script. Now, uh, we've already talked a little bit about uh, Harlan uh, not being happy, but um, he really was not happy when that happened with with Klenman. Here's how Harlan described that interaction. The name Norman Klenman had been tossed at me frequently in Toronto by the CTV's representative and Davidson, and of course by Klein and his minions. Kleinman, I was told, was the answer to my script problems. He was a Canadian writer who had fled to the States for the larger money, and since he was actually a Canadian citizen who was familiar with writing American series TV, he would be acceptable on the TV board in Ottawa under the terms of Canadian content, and yet would be a top-notch potential for scripts that didn't need heavy rewriting. 
I was too dazed in Toronto to think about Kleinman. But as I sat there in Los Angeles writing my script, I received a call from Mr. Kleinman, who was at that moment in Vancouver. Mr. Ellison, he said politely enough, this is Norman Kleinman. Bill Davidson wanted me to call you about the Star Lost. I've read your Bible, and frankly, I find it very difficult and confusing. I don't understand science fiction. But if you want to train me and pay me the top of the show money the guild just struck for, I'll be glad to take a crack at a script for you. I thanked him and said I'd get back to him when I'd save my protagonist from peril at the end of Act 4. When I walked off the show, guess who they hired not only as story editor to replace me, but to rewrite my script as well. It was Norman Kleinman who don't understand science fiction. And so you can kind of see the story is coming out, you know, it's, it's coming out. And obviously there were things going on on both sides, but unfortunately it, I feel like this was a production company that was trying to mount a production that just couldn't do the things that Harlan really wanted it to do. So then there's the guy that Harlan Ellison brought in to be the science consultant. And that is Ben Bova <laughs> and Ben Bova, he, he's also interviewed for this, this book, and he says, Harlan had asked me to be science advisor for the series. I was living in New York, and I shuttled back and forth to Toronto. My job was to read scripts and find if there were any scientific goofs and find a way around them without totally destroying the scripts. There were plenty of goofs, and I did figure ways around them. I was paid rather handsomely as a consultant and praised by everybody. And my advice was totally ignored. <laughs> they shot the scripts as originally written. It was very embarrassing because at the end of these idiotic shows, there's a full screen credit. Ben Bova, science consultant. I was shocked and dismayed to see all the work I did was absolutely for nothing. It was very disappointing to me personally. The show was just bad. I was not involved in writing the scripts, nor the creative aspects of the show. They were so hard-pressed to get the show done, they paid lip service to have a science advisor. I don't just blame the people working on The Star Lost. The general TV audience neither knows or cares about scientific accuracy. Science fiction fans are very knowledgeable and very critical of scientific inaccuracy. The inept acting, the poor plots, the very poor production values made the show ridiculous, but the scientific goofs just added to the poor quality of the series. Now, Ben Bova did not write an essay <laughs> giving his side of the story. Instead, he wrote a novel with his side of the story. It's called The Star Crossed, and it's a science fiction novel that gets into uh, metaphorically the, the experiences that Ben Bova had on The Star Lost. And it's hopefully one, one of the extra content episodes that we'll be having here on Up From the Ashes. So let's go back to William Davidson. He says, the only major criticisms, actually suggestions, made by NBC were the program slow, pick up the pace, more action, more cuts, faster cuts, fuller music and effects. And Kier seems to lack energy. We did the creative alternative. We concentrated on the story, on the characters, on the performances, and on the upfront drama. Kier's kind of internal, intense, low-key acting style carried a kind of conviction and honesty that no amount of running around would convey. Many great television programs have taken several weeks, months, even an entire first season to shake down and develop their true potential. The initial reaction in Los Angeles, New York, and other U.S. cities was excellent. Then, in following weeks, it was a matter of the ratings up one week, down the next. They were never downhill all the way. We were down to the wire. Would we get a pickup from NBC? 20th Century Fox still wanted to go ahead. CTV also wanted to continue since the show was doing well in ratings and with sponsors in Canada. But the ultimate decision came down to one man, Wes Harris at NBC. He wavered back and forth, then 
pulled the plug. It was devastating. I've heard people say it's amazing any movie or TV show gets made. And that's because any single thing can just push the entire production off the rails and suddenly it's just over. It's just done. I've personally been involved in a number of different productions that never made it. That's for stage, that's for comics, that's for screen. And it doesn't take much for those projects to just fall apart. What was the Star Lost intended to be? It was intended to be this dream, as Harlan Ellison puts it. What is the Star Lost? Well, it still is a dream. It still was a dream. It just wasn't his dream. There were other people involved and other people who dreamed and other people who put the dream on the screen. And for Harlan Ellison, it became a nightmare. And for some of these other people, it became a nightmare as well. And yeah, it lasted 16 episodes. And we'll talk about the cancellation and stuff in the future. But we're going to explore those 16 episodes. Up from the Ashes, the podcast is about a show that had so much potential and so many problems. And I will have guest hosts joining me every week as we release episodes 50 years to the day that the show would have been released. It's the ultimate television after show because it's 50 years later. <laughs> We're going to let the Star Lost take us on a journey. I'm inviting, like I said before, science fiction writers that I know and also content creators, maybe podcasters. I don't have a, a lineup for all 16 episodes yet, and I don't have people to talk about the novels with me yet, but I'm going to be trying to line up as many people as I can, and I have at least 19 or 20 episodes that we, we are going to be doing together. And I'm inviting them to come on, to come on and talk about the big ideas that the show dives into, the big ideas that the show creeps next to. And there may be some gentle teasing. There may be some complaining. There may be some ranting. There may be some people accusing me of torture. And there may be some fun. But in the meantime, <laughs> I'm also going to be producing some bonus content. So there is another TV show that's 50 years old this year. And it tracks along with the Star Lost in time frame anyway, but it also has some connection to what I was talked about in this episode with Harlan Ellison and City on the Edge of Forever. So if you go to buymeacoffee.com slash up from the ashes, I'm still working out the details of how, how it all works, but there is already a bonus episode up there. And it's about the first episode of that other show that premiered on September 8th. And so you're getting this episode um, after that, I, this is one of maybe the first time that uh, I've done a podcast anyway, where the bonus content came first and then came the regular podcast. But anyway, if you get any sort of enjoyment out of this podcast up from the ashes, please consider heading over there and becoming a member or just buying me a cup of tea, Earl Grey hot because I'm not a fan of coffee. <laughs> so, Yeah. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash up from the ashes podcast. There will be news and there will be, um, yeah, mainly news and, and links to the episodes. Finally, while not of the pedigree of some of the other people mentioned on this podcast, I am a writer. I've written many different things from comic books of all sorts to a brand new science fiction novel called Ghosts of the Future. And that's another way to support the podcast. If you can please go to benavery.com or Amazon, that's where you can purchase my books, which range from all ages graphic novels to religious comics to Ghosts of the Future, a science fiction novel that was written kind of with an old school feel, but also with, with some modern sensibilities. 
For now, I hope you subscribe to the podcast and I hope you enjoy what we have planned. We'll be covering all 16 episodes of the show, as I said before. We'll also be taking a look at the two novels that I mentioned, Phoenix Without Ashes by Edward Bryant and Harlan Ellison and Ben Bova's Star Crossed. And then, of course, there's a graphic novel of Phoenix Without Ashes. I'm also toying with covering some related movies like maybe 2001 A Space Odyssey, maybe Silent Running, maybe. That's why I say 19... 20 episodes anyway next episode we'll be talking about the very first episode of the star lost which is not phoenix without ashes it is voyage of discovery one last thing if you want to watch along with us and follow along as we go through each episode there are a couple different ways you can do that one way is very simple just Get the DVD set. It's going for about 20 bucks on uh, Amazon, I think, maybe even cheaper on eBay. I'm not sure. It has all 16 episodes, but it also has the promotional piece that they created that they sent out to shop the show around once they had uh, Douglas Trumbull in place, once they had Kira Dulia in place, once they had a pretty good idea of where they were going to go before they actually started going there and found out they weren't going to be going where they thought they were going to be going. Uh, but it's a very, it's a fascinating little piece that they put together that showcases the new technology that Douglas, Douglas Trumbull was going to be using. So you can do the DVD. You can also, I don't recommend necessarily getting the VHS set. Um, the VHS set is actually of the two hour movies that they did by taking two episodes, squeezing them together. And they did that for syndication in the eighties. And so, I mean, I have it, but that's because I'm, I'm weird or whatever. So I don't recommend going that route. There are other places very easy to find through simple Google search where you can find the star lost. You can find the episodes and you can find that uh, promotional piece that they did that I said was just a fascinating uh, look at what they were trying to do and what they were presenting to uh, the, the buyers who were buying the TV show. So it's fairly simple to get fairly simple to watch. And honestly, you know, would I recommend watching it with us? I I come close. I come close to recommending it. I do know that some people enjoy watching old, not great um, science fiction movies and TV. I also know there are some people who just don't have time for that. And yeah, we're watching it though. We're going to watch it here. So you don't have to unless you want to. And so until next time, thank you so much for listening and Godspeed. Godspeed.